Psalm 113. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? God raises the poor from the dust and lifts up the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of their people. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Come, let us worship him. may not observe this um, in our worship patterns unless you have attended here for years or you've heard me say this before, but uh, this is the last Sunday before we begin Lent on this coming Wednesday, and all during the season of Lent, we do not choose hymns that have the refrain of hallelujah in it. We, so we, we basically go without saying or singing hallelujah until... Uh, Easter Sunday, and then it, we sing it big time. So just want you to know that was your chance. That was your last, that was your last hallelujah for seven weeks. Let us offer this prayer of confession. Just join with me and um, pray with me. King of heaven, in great power you created this world, and in great love you have redeemed it. 
May humility mark our soul's dependence on you. Keep our tongues from boastful claims of self-determination and from making presumptuous plans which do not align with your will. Grant us wisdom to know our limits and the brevity of our lifespan so that we honor you and your purposes in this world. And when we know the right thing to do but fail to do it, forgive us, Lord, and convict us so that we act more courageously next time. Lord Jesus, you died for our sins, the just for the unjust. In you, we experience forgiveness and the restoration of a right spirit. You make our hearts sing with praise and gratitude for all you have done. So we offer these prayers with the assurance of your love in your holy name. Alleluia. Amen. Please be seated. The passage from James for this morning's scripture helps us reflect on yet some more things that we might not want to hear. Being too materialistic, gaining wealth dishonestly, and blindness to those in need. James tells us to practice patience and trust as we wait for the Lord to come at the time that God has planned, and that our speech be honest without the need for swearing or oaths. Let's listen to what James has to tell us. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming to you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look. The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance 
and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. The word of the Lord. I know some of you are glad to know that this is the last sermon in the series on James. <laughs> he is, um, he goes to the jugular. Um, there are two themes in this passage. One serves as a warning to the rich, and the other is a word of encouragement to learn patience and perseverance. So the question is, what do we gain from what James has to say here? This is one of those instances where we need to understand the setting in order to know best how to interpret this passage. For it's difficult to know who James is addressing here with this designation of the rich. Um, if we used world standards, that would be all of us. Every American, by world standards, is rich. So, but I'm not going to say this is a word for all of us, because James has something else in mind. It's unlikely that this group that he's addressing are part of the congregation that he has written to, or that his sermons have been collected and now are being sent to. Clearly, these seem to be non-believers outside the community of faith. And how we identify them determines then how we interpret what this passage is meant for us. For example, they're condemned for their oppressive behavior. They have lived in luxury, at the same time denying those who have served in their fields and worked their fields and have withheld those wages from them. But the worst thing they have done is that they have condemned the righteous one and killed him. Now, some commentators see this as a reference to Jesus, for whose death he is holding this group responsible. If that's the case, this interpretation equates the rich with Jerusalem's elite at the time of Jesus, the Sadducees and the chief priests. When I visited Jerusalem, uh, on one of the occasions that I visited Jerusalem, I went to a museum that is underground uh, because a lot, of the, a lot of the time of Jesus is about 18 feet below where, where the the present um, ground level is. And it was the home of a chief, not the chief priest, but one of the priests. Um, and in this home, not only was it beautifully um, decorated and mosaics on the floor and private baths, and, um, but there was also a candle-making factory in this same home. Um, 
what the priests were doing in those days is they were making a profit on every pilgrim that came into Jerusalem. Not only did they um, receive collection of, of people entering the temple, they received a collection of um, when they would sell the animals that people would make for sacrifices, but they were selling candles and other things, all having to do with religious purposes. They had a corner on the market, and they were wealthy at the expense of, of uh, faithful Jews. They occupy fine homes, and, um, and the disproportion of wealth dominated the world of Jesus in the same way that it's come to characterize our own. Well, that's one way to interpret who these people are. Another way is that this message that James is using is addressing an audience that's not even present. Not only are they not in that worshiping community, but they're not current uh, with, with his readers. He issues a warning to wealthy unbelievers for the sake of his congregation that they might be encouraged by what they lack. In the face of an economy where most of the money flowed steadily in one direction, Jesus spoke of the arrival of God's kingdom. And he gave a picture of what this new age would mean. And one of the pictures was a reversal of fortunes. The result being that God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. So, so what what the Greeks called a law of compensation, that someday uh, there would be a balance of, of wrongs being righted and things being compensated. Jesus gives a similar message that God, when God arrives and the kingdom of God is inaugurated, then things will change. Like other New Testament writers, James expected the return of Christ was imminent. It would be in his lifetime. With Jesus, God's new world had begun. He had launched God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And the age to come that Israel had longed for and prayed for was here. And because of its arrival, everything would be set right at last. At last. James wants his readers to learn from the negative warning to the rich. The opposite of hoarding wealth, of being self-indulgent and greedy, is to learn to be generous. Winston Churchill is credited with a saying, We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. James warned his readers that we don't want to be left holding on to possessions that might testify against us when we face um, judgment. Nor do we want to have ignored people who deserve and would benefit from our generosity have those same people testify against us that we offered them nothing in their time of need. Whatever resources we have, his point is, are to be used and not to be held on to. Now, 
that doesn't mean that you don't plan for the future, you don't have a pension, you don't take care of the things you need to invest in for, your, for the future. But it does mean you don't do it in excess, and you don't do it at the expense of what God would have you do in the present. Whenever the meaning and wealth and value of wealth is not put in proper perspective, our sense of gratitude toward God and our dependence on God becomes dulled. And James had already expressed concern that his readers did not have such a proper perspective. For when someone of means visited their church, they wanted them to have the best seat in the house, which in a Presbyterian congregation would be somewhere back there. <laughs> okay, I hope you know I'm joking. Um, so James uses this category of people that he calls the rich to help us learn lessons about what to do with our resources, how to live in such a way that it is exemplary of our faith, not a contradiction to our faith. Now, I could have just had the whole sermon be about this and talked about giving and offerings and all of that, but this portion's done. Now I'm going to move to the next portion. There'll be plenty of opportunity for the other. <laughs> Generations of Christians have prayed for Jesus to come, just as he promised, and nearly every generation has had to learn to wait with patience. People who speak of the Lord's coming often give the wrong expectation. You know the people that wear the signs, the end is near, and they, they're dressed like it is, <laughs> it's already come. Um, you hear people speak of such a time as dread and judgment. But the biblical sense of this event is something marvelous and celebrated. We've got it all wrong. Rather than a message of warning, it's one of eager anticipation. Instead of watch out, we ought to be telling people the best is yet to come. And it's now. It's here. The word should simply be finally. But then James also knows that the waiting can be taxing and confusing and, and actually lead us to do things counter to our faith yet again. So he offers us some do's and don'ts of what to do while we wait and what not to do while we wait. So the first do is be patient. Be patient like a farmer. Farmers wait for rain. Farmers who have to wait for rain have only two choices. Learn to be patient or quit farming. I mean, that's all you, that's all you can do. It's out of your hands. They can do all that's necessary to go cultivate a young seedling, but they're totally dependent upon God for their water supply. So be patient. The second do, he says, is stand firm, or what I would refer to as establish your heart. 
Be strong in your assurance and confidence so that your waiting will not be in vain. James is saying it's almost over. Keep hoping even when the delay seems interminable and when God's timing leads you to question. Stand firm. Establish your heart upon God. And then the third thing is he says, be persistent like the prophets and like Job. They learn to see the truth behind the way things are. And in the midst of suffering, they could see the heavenly dimension of what God was doing intersecting with our earthly dimension. They held fast to God's sense of justice, even when they disliked what they thought God was doing or not doing. You know what that's like, where you just go, God, what are you up to? I'm not, I'm not understanding. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Why hasn't the change come? If your kingdom has been established, if it's, if it's part of the world we live in, why don't we see more evidence of it? So like the prophets and Job, behind the mystery of the ways of God they did not understand, they put their faith and confidence in the Lord, whose heart they knew to be merciful and compassionate. You have to trust the character of God when you don't understand the circumstances of your life. They knew persistence would be rewarded when God would finally set all things right. James also has some what not to do while we wait. He says, do not grumble against one another. I don't know about you, but most of the times I hurt my own family members with my words, it's because of something else that's happened. It's because I haven't gotten in touch with what else went on that day, and something that something happens, and I get irritable, and I lash out. And then later, I have to come back and apologize and admit that something else was bothering me, not what... Um, the person in my home was doing or not doing. That's what happens when our patience runs thin, when we're not, um, when our faith is not the center of our lives and, or, or not necessarily active. It could be even active. It's just that we, we become impatient, and when we do, we grumble. And that puts a strain on our relationships with one another. And James says, don't complain about someone else, lest a far greater complaint gets lodged against you. Well, that doesn't seem to stop us, does it? <laughs> but it's a good word. It's a good word. The second don't is, or do not, is do not forget that every one of us is being held accountable to God. There aren't any exemptions. So love is to be the law of how we live with one another while we wait. Because the judge who stands at the door holds us accountable. And then finally he says, do not swear. And this isn't using foul language swear. This is 
swearing as in an oath. I swear by God that I will do that, or something like that. That's the kind of swearing he's referring to. If you notice, two of these do nots have to do with speech and the tongue. Consistent to James' entire book, the things that get us in the most trouble and expose our lack of patience and persistence are our tongues. They're either used to speak disparagingly of one another or used to make an oath to say more than is necessary, which makes us susceptible to judgment. The message translation of verse 12 says it so well. And since you know that God cares, let your language show it. Don't add words like, I swear to God, to your own words. Don't show your impatience by concocting oaths to hurry up God. Just say yes or no. Just say what is true. The way your language, that way, your language can't be used against you. We live in a, in a time where language seems to be uh, not so careful these days. And we easily dismiss what someone says, what they mean. We, we, um, if we're offended, then something's wrong with us, rather than the fact that that someone has said something offensive and vulgar and untrue. James says, don't let that be part of who you are because it reflects upon the one who you put your faith and trust in. Your relationship with God affects everything. And throughout this book, he says, it affects your speech or it doesn't. So, So take it into account. Pay attention. When it comes to money, make sure that the way we use money brings honor and glory to God. That the one who loves us provides for us, and we can count on that. And learn to be generous in the way God is generous. Simple words, yet hard for each and every one of us to consistently practice. Which is why James makes it just so plain in the way he talks. And why so many preachers avoid this book. Because it's almost too straightforward and too harsh. As I've mentioned before, he seems to leave out the grace element of our lives and the fact that God has graced us and the motivation comes from this sense of grace. It's as if he took all the words of Jesus and, and, and extended them in a more blunt way without the actions of Jesus that has brought, uh, that has empowered us to carry out those words. Thank goodness James had other friends who were leaders in the church. And thank goodness there was this meal to remind us that it is all God's grace. It is all God's doing. 
that is able to transform each and every one of us so that the very nature and character of God exemplified in the life of Jesus can be our own. We too can live as people that God makes holy, that God makes good. So I invite you to receive these elements of bread and, and uh, the cup, which remind us of Jesus giving his life for us that we might find our lives in him and that we might live more boldly, more courageously, more freely in light of his grace. Would those who are serving please come?